I'm going to read this morning um, from Psalm 11, but I'll be preaching from the book of Esther. But Psalm 11, um, seven short verses here that speak to the superintendence of God over all the affairs of life. Psalm 11, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Let's pray. We do thank you, God, that you are more than aware of all that happens on this planet. And when the foundations are shaken, Lord, there is nothing we can do. But you are still sitting on your throne. And you behold. And you test. And there is reward, Lord, for the righteous. And God, we thank you that our trust is in you and it is not misplaced. And we pray, God, that as we, again, just look at your word, that our eyes would be lifted up and that we would behold you seated on high and that our praise, God, would be truly to you and you alone and that our thoughts would be worthy of you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You can turn now to the book of Esther. Um, I've gone back and looked at my record of what I've preached, which only goes back to um, 2002, um, and I have no record of preaching Esther. Um, So, and it's a little book, and it's one that we are quite familiar with. I imagine there would be very few people um, who would not know the story of Esther, at least in, in the general overview. Um, but it is a, a book that, as we know, speaks to the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, that he is more than aware of everything that's happening in this world, and he is in control of it. And so it's a book of hope, really, and encouragement that, that God is superintending the affairs of our lives. I need that encouragement. Um, we all do from time to time. And so as I was just praying about, you know, what to start next, and this is just to be, again, a short series because it's a short book, um, I thought this would be a place that would be encouraging to me and hopefully to you as well. One of the first things we have to do, though, is, um, is understand some terms. And, and again, I don't pretend to fully understand them. And I've just thrown out two big words, sovereignty and providence. Um, I don't know that any of us will ever fully understand either of those two concepts um, until we enter into glory. And God reveals to us just how much he was doing that we were unaware of. But when we think of sovereignty, we know that basically it, it means freedom. It, it, we think of it, it means being in control. But in fact, the word more has at its core the idea that God is free, that, that he is not compelled by anything outside of him, that what compels him is his own nature, but nothing outside of him. But it also does speak to God um, being in control. But in that, we, I think we typically go too far. And we think that um, because God knows, as Scripture says, every lot that is cast, he will knows the outcome of it. 
And so every time we roll dice, God knows what number they're going to come up. He, is, he has absolute knowledge. But that doesn't necessarily mean that God is actually directing everything that happens. In other words, that God is the agent, the first cause for everything that happens. And what helps me with this is understanding when a, a state within the United States says it is sovereign, or when a nation says it is sovereign. That doesn't mean that that state or nation is directing every single event that takes place within that state or nation. But it means that every single event is under the authority of the state or the nation. So it's one thing to be under the authority of and for the state and nation to be in a general sense in control of, and another thing to be the agent, the cause of. And so that's an important distinction to make because the scripture tells us that God is the agent or the source of everything that is good. But it never says that God is the source of evil. So that's a major distinction to make. And he is in control of evil. He can, he can work his will through evil, but he is not the source of evil. So scripture makes a distinction between God creating the angels, Lucifer being one of them, and yet God did not make Satan. Satan made himself. He was an agent who was free to make choices, and he made a choice to turn against God. And in doing so, he moved from being an angel of light to being a source of sin and death. Even Adam had a choice that God was more than um, in control of. But it was nonetheless a choice that he could make to eat of that tree or to walk by it and not eat of it. He chose to eat of it. And the scripture tells us that when he did, sin and death entered into the world. God never attributes, the scripture never attributes sin and death to God. It attributes it to a man. Through one man, sin and death entered into the world. It's never attributed to God. So God did not create sin and death. But God is more than in control of sin and death. Absolutely in control of it. But he didn't create it. Now to me, I like this. It's a, it's a bit of a paradox, and, and, and we can't fully reconcile it in our own minds. But I'm okay with that personally, because I like the idea of a God who is so big, he can allow people to make choices. And, they, and those choices will in no way frustrate him from accomplishing his will. I appreciate the start this morning with Jonah that Jeff had in the adult Sunday school class. There, if there was ever a case of a man who was choosing to rebel, and yet God was still in control, it's a beautiful illustration of that. And we have them all through Scripture. Now, providence is a little different. And again, this is where we don't always get the idea. Um, the, The city of Providence, Rhode Island, um, what got its name because as the pilgrims came here to the United States and were settling it, that name, it was given the name because the understanding of the name Providence, the word Providence is God's protective care. But literally, it's a combination of, of two Latin words, pro and video, that means God has foresight. He can see in advance of what's going to happen. And so nothing ever takes God by surprise. And in his advanced sight, his foreknowledge, his foresight, God takes care of his children. And that's what Psalm 11 speaks to. The foundations are falling apart. That's what we see. But we don't see God, who is seated in the heavens, who is more than able to take care of a world whose foundations are falling apart. He has always held everything together. 
And he is still holding everything together. That will never change. But in his foreknowledge, in his foresight, there is nothing that happens that God is not aware of it before it happens. He is omniscient. He has perfect and full knowledge. And so that is played out all through the book of Esther. I have to say, right from the, from the beginning, though Esther is a remarkable woman, and I don't want to speak down at all on her, and I know that one day I will see her in heaven, as I've said before, I don't want to apologize to anybody in heaven who was revealed in the book of the, in the Bible um, because I thought too low of them. Um, but she is no Daniel. And speaking closer to her contemporaries, she was not like Ezra, and she was not like Nehemiah. There is nobody in the Bible that's perfect. Some of them came a lot closer to it than others, but Esther would have been somewhere in between. Not as bad as some of the heroes of the Bible, and not as good as others. This week, um, I picked up a little book that I, um, apparently I've never finished reading. I have lots of books like that. And it's called Faith is the Victory. It's a book that's out of print. And um, Russell Kelfer, some of you knew who Russell Kelfer uh, was, he used to read that book every year. And um, it's a wonderful little book. But I guess I never read the last chapter. And so I did this week. And I, went, I took it home and read it to Patsy. And the guy, after writing a whole book on faith is the victory, writes about how unvictorious his life has been. And it was, it's a powerful little chapter. But his point is, and he actually says it in the book, I am not a hero. There is only one hero, and it is Jesus Christ. And he says, I have only pastored small churches all my life. And I've had a lot more failure than I've had success. And he just goes on talking about this. It was, he just, he's just pouring his heart out. And you're going, this is a depressed man. But he wasn't depressed. He's just being honest. And he's saying, you know, you can write a book like this and leave people with the impression and that you're something great. And he goes, Jesus is the only one who's great. And, and I am just an average, struggling pastor like tens of thousands of others in this country. And he says, there are battles, and I have people that don't like me, and I have people that do like me. He says, I'm just like everybody else. But he says, the point is, faith is the victory. It's not faith in what God might do. It is faith in God. And no matter what my problems have been, I still believe him. And that is a victory. Because a lot of people stop believing. And he goes, by the grace of God and the power of God, I still believe God. And that is victory. Faith is the victory. The one thing the devil wants us to do is stop believing God. And if we look too much at this world, that's what's going to happen. We have to look up. There is a God who is in control of this world as bad as it may seem. And, and in that, faith is restored, and faith is strengthened. Daniel, everybody knew Daniel was a Jew. That was, not, that was nothing Daniel could hide. Esther will hide her identity. Daniel refused to defile himself with the king's food. Apparently for Esther, it was never a thought. She ate whatever was in front of her. Ezra had a chance, an opportunity, to return to Jerusalem, to Israel. And he took it, along with 50,000 others. Esther never went. And that, we should probably blame more her cousin, Mordecai, who was serving as her adopted father. The Jews had the privilege, after 70 years of captivity, to go home. Cyrus issued a decree saying they could all leave. Very few left. Most stayed put. Mordecai was one of those. 
They were in disobedience to God. We don't know all the reasons why they stayed. One was probably because many of those Jews had become very wealthy. And they were going, if they went back to Israel, they were going back to a country that had been laid waste for 70 years. There were no buildings. There were no walls around the cities. There was nothing but danger and poverty. It would be like an American with money moving to Somalia. You're going, is that really what I want to do? How's that going to be good for my kids? I mean, all the different reasons you can think of not to do it. And so most of the Jews did not return. Mordecai and Esther were two of them. And we could go on and on. Um, The purpose of the book seems to demonstrate God's providential care. It also shows that God can use flawed people, and he does, to accomplish his perfect plan. And there is obviously latent in this book a strong warning against anti-Semitism. You don't want to turn against God's people. This book was one that Martin Luther said, I wish it wasn't in the Bible. He had some funny thoughts sometimes, Martin Luther. He said that because there is no mention of God in this book. It is the only book in the Bible that does not mention the name of God. There is also no reference to the law of Moses, to the temple, or to Jewish worship, and not even to Jerusalem, except in passing, a certain man was from Jerusalem. It is never quoted in the New Testament. It's not even referred to in the New Testament. There is no mention of prayer in this book. There are no miracles in this book. No church father ever wrote a commentary on this book. So you can see why Martin Luther is going, I wish it wasn't even in the Bible. I'm very glad it is in the Bible. It is a wonderful book. A book of God working in very ungodly circumstances. You can basically divide the book with the first four chapters. Um, Are they a threat to the Jewish people? And then chapters 5 through 10, the triumph of the Jews. King Ahasuerus, the Jewish name, for the Persian king, also known as Xerxes, is on the throne. Xerxes is actually pretty well known in history. He was, it was his father, Darius, who had previously lost a major battle to the Greeks. Remember, Esther is in the empire of the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, which is modern-day Iran and Iraq. I always find it a little humorous. It seems like, you know, ever so often I'll meet somebody that looks like they're of Middle Eastern descent, and I'll say, where are you from? And they'll say, I'm from Persia. And I I think that's a little funny, because there is no Persia today. There is no Persia on anyone's map today. There is no Persian flag. There's no Persian currency. There's no capital of Persia. What they're saying is, I'm not willing to acknowledge I'm from Iran or Iraq. Um, but that's the area from Persia. Esther was from Persia, which had been the major world empire, but it's on decline. And it's on decline because the Greeks are rising. And And the Greeks have just given the Persians their first major military defeat under Darius. Now, the son, Xerxes, says, I'm going to avenge my father's defeat. And so he assembles 200,000 soldiers and hundreds of ships. And he was absolutely defeated by the Greeks. And he went back home and licked his wounds. 
And so the book of Esther, most of it takes place after that defeat. The whole book of Esther takes place over about a 10-year span of Xerxes' kingdom, who didn't rule himself all that long, from 486 B.C. to 464 B.C. He would be later assassinated uh, by one of his um, chief servants. His son, Artaxerxes, will take the throne. And his son, Artaxerxes' mother, historians believe, was Vashti, the queen that is first on the scene when this book starts, which makes it interesting. So... If there's anything about Xerxes or Ahasuerus that we know from history, and we actually know a fair amount, he was an angry, rash, prone to extreme man. This was not a man that you wanted to make angry, which will fit into this book. There was an occasion when he was planning on going to war, and he had an ally from another area, an older man who said, I want to contribute to your war, to your campaign. And he offered the equivalent of many millions of dollars to Xerxes to put into the coffers to fund the campaign. And Xerxes was just impressed. And he just, he just, man, so few people have done this. And he says, I really appreciate it, but no, you don't need to contribute. Keep your money. And the man said, well, I appreciate that, but I have one small request. Would you allow my oldest son not to go into battle? And Xerxes says, I'm going to kill him. And so he turns around from giving this lavish praise upon this man who wanted to offer him millions of dollars, and in the next moment kills the man's son because the man asked if his son could be exempted from that battle. This was a rash impulsive man that you didn't want to make angry. That's going to fit into the story of Esther. So when we come to chapter 1, it's a long introduction there, but um, I think it's important to lay the groundwork. It says, Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his princes in attendance, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of, the, of his provinces were in, in his presence. Now this went on for 180 days, verse 4. Now that's six-month-long party. That's pretty extreme. Now, historians tell us that it wasn't just all partying. That was a big part of it. But when they weren't drinking themselves drunk, they were planning the battle with Greece. So they took six months to plan this campaign. That's really what was going on. And then they had a seven-day final bash, verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Susa, the capital, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And now we get to the important part. And it says, verse 10, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded these seven eunuchs, I won't try to read all their names, To bring, verse 11, Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. So the king goes, he's flat out drunk. But he goes, you know, everybody needs to see how beautiful my wife is. Bring Bring her out. Now, this is where nobody knows why or exactly what he wanted her to do. Um, And the stories go all over the place. But basically, she just said, for whatever reason, no. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. And the king, not surprisingly, became very angry. 
and his wrath burned within him. Now, you need to get the picture here. This is not just that a drunken king is wanting to haul his wife out in front of all of his drunken friends and so they can leer at her and her beauty. That would have been enough for most women to say, I don't think so. But put it in its context. This is a world leader who is planning on bringing 200,000 men at his command against another world leader. And he can't get his wife to do what he wants him to do. So this is a huge embarrassment to him. How are you going to conquer the Greeks when you can't even conquer your own home? Who's wearing the pants in your home, buddy? As the saying used to be. And so the surprise really is that he just doesn't kill her on the spot. We don't know why he doesn't. Maybe historians believe she's already pregnant with Artaxerxes. Maybe she's big pregnant. Maybe he doesn't have any other heirs. We don't know the reasons. But he he doesn't kill her. She's able to continue living, and she will give birth to his heir. But he's mad. And so he goes to his counselors. What should I do? And their first thought is, I'm not going to be able to tell my wife what to do now. First thought is themselves. All this is going to spread. And so verse 16, And in the presence of the king and the princes, Mumikin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. Her example is going to spread. Chaos. What are we going to do? Nobody's going to be able to tell their wife what to do anymore. First women's liberation movement. (laughs) For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to his presence, but she didn't come. You think I'm going to go get your slippers? (laughs) You got another thing coming. In this day... The ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. You've got to nip it in the bud, as Barney Fife used to say. (laughs) If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be appealed. Now, that's going to be significant. The Medes and Persians, for all their faults, were a people of law. And when a law was made, you could not change the law. It was written in stone, as we say. And so make a law that no wife can disobey her husband. Verse 20. And when the king's edict, which he shall make, is heard throughout all his kingdom... Great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. Would it that it were so easy? (laughs) Silly, isn't it? And these people attempt are going to try to rule the world. And they think this is the way that it's done. By just beating people into submission, basically. And this word pleased the king. No surprise there. And the princes and the king did as Mumikin proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be master in his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. And that sets up the stage in the providence of God. You see, everything here is petty, vindictive, Selfish, small, wrong. And God is using all of that mess to move aside a woman and move in a woman. Because God knows what's coming. He knows the storm that's coming. And nobody else has any idea. 
Nobody, has, even the players in that storm, don't know the storm that's about to come. But God does. I'm telling you, I think we are going to sit around heaven and be awed at how God was working all things together for his glory and our good. I just think of a few things, and I, I you know, I, I don't think profound thoughts. I think very few thoughts at all. But if I thought more thoughts than what I think, I would like to think that I would think on the providence of God. I mean, really, if you're going to, because you can't think forward to the providence of God, but we ought to think backwards. Because God does give us some indications of how he's been at work. I, you know, just one, and I've said this before, but I'm just thinking about it this morning again. If there's anything that I have never at the moment enjoyed, it was not having any money. And in seminary, boy, when I was eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day, and my car had been stolen, and I'm borrowing rides from other people to go to work, I didn't enjoy it. Not one bit. And as far as I could tell, it was going to be that way the rest of my life. So I wasn't just grousing about it, but I wasn't enjoying it. And I don't even think I was thanking God for it. I had nothing to my name when I proposed to my wife. Nothing. And I didn't even have a ring to give her. Nothing. And I apologized to her. After I proposed to her and she said yes, and I said, I, I, I don't even have a ring to give you. And she said, with a twinkle in her eye, she says, I told God years ago that I would know it was the right man when he didn't have a ring to give to me. <laughs> and I'm going, unbelievable. <laughs> I didn't know that. I had no idea. But she figured that she was going to end up on the mission field someday. Little did she know it would be Texas. (laughs) And that you can't walk around the mission field, the kind of mission field she was thinking of, Papua New Guinea, with a diamond ring on. So what good would it do? And so in her mind, God, if I believe that you've called me to yourself and to mission. And God has brought, literally brought the world to us at his hill over the years. And it's, it's just been amazing, you know, how many different people from around the world that we've been able to have a small part in their lives. It wasn't the mission field she was thinking or that I th- was thinking of. But God took what was in her heart and he honored that. And he said, okay, that's not too big for me. I can do that. I've got a guy out there And I'm going to make him so poor. (laughs) See, I didn't know that's what God was doing. I'm just going to have that guy eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for three years of his life. And he's not going to like it. But he will not have a ring to give to you. See, God had it all planned. And then you will know this is the right guy. And more important, that guy will know, (laughs) you know, he's done the right thing. And asking you to marry him. Because only God could do that. There are so many instances in our lives. It may be a sickness, an illness that God brought to us. But there are things that have happened because of that that would have never happened if that illness or sickness wouldn't have come. Or a job that's been lost. Or maybe somebody that's even died. And yet we can see how what good God brought to our lives that would have never come to us if those circumstances hadn't happened. It's like that time the professor that I took up his cause and I I was going to go down to the president and complain to him that this professor should be tenured. And I was warned off of that very wisely by by a much older um, believer and, and and I didn't do that. And years later, I was having lunch with that professor who had left the college 10 years before, and I thought he had just been gravely wronged. 
at that school. And I'm sitting down having lunch with this man, and I said, I'd like to know your thoughts about, you know, 10 years before when you didn't get tenure. And he just jumped on it. And he says, best thing that ever happened to me. I thank God for that man who didn't give me tenure. He was being used of God, and I would not be where I am today doing what I'm doing today if it hadn't been for that man. And I felt like that man had been wronged. Wronged or not, that's not the issue. God is used that to move that man out of that school, which he wouldn't have moved out of, to be where God wanted him to be. So it's not about whether it was right or wrong, should have happened, shouldn't have happened. It was wrong. It shouldn't have happened. But we have a God who can work the shouldn't have happens for his glory and for our good. And so we can say, God, yes, it shouldn't have happened. It was evil. As Joseph said to his brothers, you meant this for evil. But God meant it for good. Whatever the reasons were that Vashti didn't go, whatever the reasons were that the king wanted her out parading her beauty, doesn't matter. It was all wrong. But God was working his will, preparing for what these people could have had no knowledge of. That should give us hope. So in chapter 2, Esther comes on the scene. And just very briefly, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, what we aren't told is four years have just transpired. It took him four years to think of Vashti. Actually, it's four years of this military campaign. And he has just come back defeated. Now, again, I don't want to get too psychological here, but we can, if we can just begin to put our play, our, ourselves in this man's place. This is a world leader who has just suffered a serious military defeat. His nation will never be the same. And he comes back, and as is true of most men, he's looking for some small way to prove his significance. And in that context of utter humiliation and defeat, he goes, I'll take another woman. How would you like women to be brought in as queen under those circumstances? This is a man who has little regard for human life and even less regard for women. They serve one purpose, to gratify his lust. Only one requirement to be his queen. Beautiful. I don't care what you think because I'm not going to ask you. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you can contribute because you can't. You exist for one reason. My sexual pleasure. That's it. So this was not a wonderful opportunity that comes to Esther. This is demeaning, degrading. Her only qualification will be her beauty. And even that, God was superintending. God saying, I know what's going to happen. My people are about to be annihilated. And there is this thoroughly pagan, base man who doesn't even think women have brains. All he can think about is beauty. So I'm going to take this little Jewish girl who is not even being obedient to my calling for her to go back to Jerusalem and I'm going to make her outstandingly beautiful so she can become the principal wife of this pagan king. Everything about this is wrong. Esther didn't have any control over how beautiful she was going to be and she could have had no idea of why God made her the way that he did. None of us know these things. Some people God makes amazingly beautiful. And other people, he doesn't. We don't know why. 
But God has purpose even in that. We turn to him. Makes me think of that professional weightlifter friend of mine, friend of my parents that I was in junior high and he, he was a new believer and he was eating at our home a lot. And he had just huge, never seen a man with so many muscles. He had muscles on top of muscles. And it, it just huge. He had just won Mr. Texas in both physique and weightlifting. Only man who's ever done that. And he looked at me one day and he says, I used to be just like you. And I'm going, that can't be possible. And he goes, no, seriously, I had a chicken neck just like you. I was bird-breasted just like you. I had arms that looked like threads just like you. I mean, and I'm just going, it made me really feel good about myself. And, and, he, and, and, but, you know, and he's, but it was actually an encouragement. And he says, but it doesn't have to be this way. And so he got me doing push-ups and lifting weights. You can see how, what a wonderful thing it turned out to be. <laughs> there are some, but even, even that, you know, it's not that, I mean, there's some things that we can have some influence over, obviously. But God had a, as I look back, God had a reason in allowing me to be the way that I am. And when I look at my growing up, my older brother, younger brother, none of y'all knew my older brother, but my younger brother just next to me, you're going, man, are these guys even brothers? Same gene pool? Same parents? Like, I think so. Um, I, I believe so. But it, it's, we don't look anything alike. But I, but I think I know my brothers had much more come at them because of their good looks that I never had come at me. And I thank God for that. And I, I can't help but think, God knows, I would not have responded as well as my brothers have. And God was protecting me. And I truly thank the Lord. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't make mistakes. And so they hold a beauty contest. That's all it is. It is simply a beautiful contest from all 127 provinces. And they found, find a girl right in the capital city of Susa. Her name is Esther. So it says, verse 5, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. In other words, Mordecai is of the same line as King Saul. That is significant. Who was Saul's greatest enemy? The Amalekites, not the Philistines. They were number two. And you remember, Saul battled the Amalekites, and he was supposed to destroy every single one of them, and he saved the king, Agag. In this story, many years later, Mordecai, a direct descendant of Saul, is going to have one arch enemy, Haman, who is a direct descendant of Agag. Isn't that interesting? God is in control of these things. It hasn't happened by chance. Esther's parents have died, and Mordecai, a cousin, older cousin, obviously, is raising her as his daughter. Verse 7, and he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. Hadassah was her Jewish name, but she wasn't going by that. She is going by her Persian name. If you had looked at these people's lives, Mordecai and Esther, I don't think you would have seen anything Jewish. This is really a sad state of affairs. They're not going by Jewish names. They don't seem to be practicing any Jewish customs. And they are not, as we see, they have not gone back to Jerusalem. They have become not 
fully secularized, but they are probably more like the world than they are like God's distinctive people. But they're still God's people. And God's going to use them to accomplish his purposes. Verse 8, and it came about when the, and the, when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to Susa, the capital, into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now, look at verse 12. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go to the king, Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with the oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. Can you imagine? So they brought the most beautiful women from the entire empire together And for one year, they do nothing except make themselves more beautiful than they already are. Six months of immersing themselves in various oils so as to soften the skin, um, um, make the skin healthier, make it more fragrant, and then six months with spices. So these were good-looking good-smelling women by the time they went in to the king. All in the hope that their one night with the king would result in them moving from concubine to wife and being crowned queen. This is not a good scenario. So she is not revealing her identity. She has not gone back to Israel. And now she has not resisted having sex with a man before she's married to him. And then in the hope of marrying an unbeliever. Everything about this is wrong. Remember, we have one hero. It is not Esther. It is not anybody in this room. It is Jesus Christ. God uses flawed people. None are perfect. And it's amazing that our God is the kind of God that he is that he can use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. So moving ahead quickly to the end of the story, it says in verse um, 16, So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And even that, God was in charge of. He made her beautiful, He gave her a winsome personality. He moved aside Vashti. He worked through the whims and and shallowness and depravity of this king and even having him take interest in her above all the others. All of it, God, is at work. Verse 18, Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all of his princes and his servants, and he also made a holiday for the prince's for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done when under his care. 
So let me just make some final observations here. Number one, the king plans the conquest of Greece, but he has no power over his wife. Number two, the king calls upon the wise men who have knowledge of the times. Remember, that's what it said. I didn't read that verse, but that was their qualification. Chapter 1, verse 13. The king said to the wise men who understood the times, which is another way of saying they had foresight. Providence. But did not call upon God, who is all-wise and has perfect foresight. The king and his counselors were afraid of losing control of their wives if Vashti went unpunished. But God is in absolute control, even over the free will of people. Nothing threatens his sovereignty. See, these are contrasts that are being set up. God is not a ruler like Xerxes. God is not threatened by the choices people make. And they are genuine choices, free choices. Xerxes is threatened by those. He can't remain king and have people make free choices contrary to his will. God says, doesn't threaten me in the least. I'm still God. I like that. Free will is a threat to the most powerful men of the world. And that's why the most powerful men in the world are constantly working to take away the freedom of others. Because they can't remain free and powerful and have other people who are free. God is not like that. It is not a threat to our God. In chapter 2, a defeated man in in his weakness and depression seeks to dominate those that he can. God is not like that. God is in control of the refusal of a queen, the whims of a king, and the growing beauty of an unknown girl. He's also in control of the defeat of an army, the failure of the Jews to return, and the disobedience of their lifestyles. But in control of, again, doesn't mean that he is the agent and the source of everything that's happening. God is the source of good. He is not the source of evil. We have a good God. And he sits on on high, as Psalm 11 says. And though the foundations may be coming apart, God is not threatened, and our hope is secure. So we'll spend some more time with this book over the next few weeks. You all know where it goes. I'm not going to bring out a lot of profound insights or anything. But I trust our hope is encouraged and made stronger as we reflect on the truth that our God is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose.